Hello and welcome to episode 54 of the Ski Instructor Podcast. My name is Dave Burrows and I'm the director and owner of Snow Pro Ski School based here in Valdilier, Switzerland. Now, normally I come to you from my old office, which looked out onto the, uh, the Port de Soleil, but things have changed. I have now got an actual real office, which I don't really know what to do with, but I'm in it. Um, which looks out onto the mythical roundabout of Valdilier and I'm looking at the hotel. So I'm like right in the centre of the village and also um, I'm right by the train station. So every now and then a train rumbles by. I think they arrive here. Well, not now, so you probably won't hear it. But uh, it's pretty cool to have a separate space for the ski school. Um, shows that we're growing a bit and uh, yeah, it's nice. It's nice to have a sort of structure and a place to go although it's not exactly the same as kind of, you know, walking up the stairs in my house and, and be able to carry on um, and nip in wherever I want. But it is creating quite a separation between my kind of work life and my home life, which I think is beneficial. So that is what is new with me. The view is not as good um, because I'm looking up at the other side, I suppose you would say the other side of the valley, but I've got, a, you know, a few ski chalets, a little Swiss flag floating in the wind and, and a bunch of forest uh, towering above me so it's pretty cool um, yeah so what's new uh, season um, season finished the season has finished um, I was due to be going skiing to Zermatt tomorrow but it's just too hot and uh, there's not that much open up there so I think my big grand plan of trying to ski every month this year is probably not going to happen and frankly a little bit of me just doesn't want to. I've kind of had enough for this season and I I, I want a bit of time off to go and do something else. Um, gives me a bit more time to edit podcasts, which is cool because I've got quite a few in the bag that I've been waiting for, uh, waiting for some time to, to, to do. Um, this week's episode, episode 54, is one that I've been sitting on for quite a long time because I think it's, for me, it's been a really, really... I know that it's quite a special interview and it's one that I've been sitting on for quite a long time because I wanted to make sure that I did a, a half decent job in editing it and plus it was like two hours, 45 minutes long so I need to make sure that I split it up in the right way and dropped it in the order of all of the other podcasts. So this podcast was recorded in a hotel room in Aosta in Italy um, in the autumn and it's with Darren Turner of Darren Turner Ski Coaching. Um, what I really wanted to speak to Darren about was his life as a ski instructor and growing up as a skier, for sure. He's an amazing skier, great teacher. Um, but he's kind of moved on a little bit. So he still does some private ski coaching, but not anywhere near as, as much as he used to do. But he's now, he then moved into um, an app called the Ski School app, which is hugely popular, um, doing apps and stuff way before his time. Um, and then has now moved on to a whole different world of, of, um, of basically video production. Um, so I was very, very interested to speak to him on the basis of skier turned into something else, turned into something else, to see that there's life after skiing, you know, to a certain extent. And also just because I, I kind of admire the kind of person that he is and how he grew up, I, I see in myself a lot of, similar things similar mentality and uh, and i think that really comes out in the interview that we did um so i split this into two parts uh this section that's just about to follow me is about one hour 15 and so you will 
won't get me in the middle of this you'll just get it straight through um, as we normally do with these uh, with these two-part ones um, got some other cool podcasts in the bag I've just finished one with um, with, with Tom Gelly which I'm really looking forward to um, editing up we're going to make a part two out of that one as well because um, we didn't quite finish it off to, to, to the satisfaction of both of us I've interviewed Tom before um, but the quality wasn't as good so we fixed that this time and, and talked about what he's been up to lately in the two years since we interviewed him last so um, really good and I hope that you enjoy this episode with Darren um, I found him so interesting and, and I really hope that you do too enjoy the interview Thank you for coming. Well, no, it's all the way from Chevalier. It's not too far, and it's not a bad drive. I had to pop into Turin, as I said, and pick something up. So, it kind of made sense to come around. And all the all the plans changed. I was supposed to be going off to Colorado, and then tomorrow flying back to UK, then on to Colorado, and it all be pushed back. So it's annoying. It's it's kind of life. Um, no one sticks to schedules anymore. I think the hard thing is when you've got three or four different people all trying to fit into a schedule yeah. and everybody has different, I suppose, priorities um, when you're trying to make something happen. It's filming for an IT company, basically. Okay. Doing some interviews. So nothing to do with skiing? Nothing ski related, even though it's near the mountains. Huh. Um, it's an IT company, they need some interviews. And yeah, this has kind of led me into doing a lot more film work and helping companies communicate, I suppose, okay. through film. So it's quite unski related, but communication. She's also it's kind of ski related. I'm yeah. very scared of this coffee, by the way. It does not taste like decaf. <laughs> I, and it's three o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> I'm not she, gonna sleep tonight. I've just had a double one, but she she looked like she just went decaf, yeah. Yeah, yeah whatever, no one drinks yeah, decaf. Drink yeah. this. Yeah. <laughs> Don't be ridiculous. Uh well, we've been setting this up for ages, haven't we? We have been talking about it for a while. And we've had various phone calls and we just haven't got round to it. And I think this is like a year in the, the making, but I'm very Thank excited you. about this one. I hope I don't let you down. <laughs> yeah, you do, you don't. I whatever. Think it's boring to say nothing. <laughs> The um, the reason I'm excited about it is because you've got, I think, quite a, a different perspective because you've done the whole ski instructor thing and you've kind of pivoted within that and then shot off in a completely different direction. And the story that we often get on the podcast is is um, like ski instructors still doing ski instructory things. Mm. And we never see what's beyond the other side of that. And that's why I think it's really, really interesting. I'm interested to hear the full kind of journey. And you're probably not done with your life yet, but like, you know, the... <laughs> I hope not. I, hope not. I, hope not. Yeah. I haven't left here yet, but... Um, yeah. Yeah, it's been, it's been quite interesting. I mean, skiing is or has been and is, you know, a very big part of my life, professional and otherwise. Um, but it's also, yeah, led me down a few things I didn't plan about, Mm -hmm. um, in a really good way, in an interesting way. And, uh, 
I think like any job, you get to a point where I think if you get if you're bored and you get up and you just go through the motions, then I think it's time to move on mm-hmm. and do some different things. That's true. Um, often, I think people that do that often come back to something along the same lines, but maybe with a bit of lemon thrown on the top or a happens, twist to it. Yeah, happened to me about every seven years so far in my life. This is the longest thing that I've stuck at anything. They say you have yeah. four jobs in your life, they reckon. Oh, yeah? Four careers, which is what somebody said to me once. That's so I'm due one extra. Yeah. Hairdresser. <laughs> yeah. Juggler. Anything. <laughs> it could be the world is your lobster. <laughs> could be anything. It's true because we had, it's, it's funny because we were having these conversations, weren't we? And then you met up with someone that you knew, a guy called Steve Chester. Hi, Steve. If you might be listening, probably not. I'll throw it towards him. Yeah, yeah, please yeah, do. I'll and uh, you know him, and I used to work with him. Yeah, really. Ran. I do some work for a a charity called um, the Le Cure de France. So it's like a play on words of the Tour de France, mm-hmm. and it's a cycling event for breast cancer mainly. Okay. And. Steve happens to be like a kind of he's called kind of the captain he looks after the riders a bit and, oh, yeah. and he he said that so we were just having a chat I don't know him super well and said yeah I mainly do ski instruction stuff and he said I only know one ski instructor and this guy used to work for me and mentioned your name which was quite funny so um, this is about four weeks ago so he said actually I'm going to I'm going to have a chat for yeah. this small world it is a small world especially in Switzerland but, yeah, certainly, it just amazes me how often coincidences yeah. and stuff like well, that Well, as I up. said to you, you know, I think as well, if you think how many times you may become close yeah. to meeting people that you might know um, and don't, so it's quite mad. So, yeah, he, he used to work, he was your boss, was he? Or was he he was, yeah, so we went, oh, this is a... Yeah, like I say, a whole nother career. Yeah. But after I'd finished in the, the city, I then went into commercial finance. So if you wanted to buy like a hotel or something like that, and we the theory was is that we'd broker a better deal for you than you would be able to mm. get from your bank, say. And um, I arrived at this place and I thought, yeah, Steve was working there when I arrived. We were all brokers at that time and then eventually kind of he got, you know, he was like, boss of the other broke the brokers broker. and then he went and did his own own shop and I went and did my own shop and kind of for years we were sort of swimming in the same same thing yeah, yeah. he did a slightly different variation of that he was much better at um, you know, hotel financing stuff and I was much more into healthcare stuff but it was, it was I don't know whether he still does it or not I'm guessing he does um, yeah I but, think so I don't but yeah like, terrifically good guy the only the only thing I would say was that they did to him that typical thing that a lot of organisations do is that they take their star performer and then they make that person boss of all the others. So they then put that person into like a, 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 a management role of people. Um, and management isn't their strong suit. Their strong suit is selling stuff to people and, and doing deals. So you'd be much better, you know, you see it so often in organisations that they say, "Oh, you no, see you're it on ski schools." You do, don't you? It's like you're the best skier, so you can be well, the boss. Well, the best skier or the instructor that's been there the longest. Um, yeah. And he might not 
he or she might not always be the best person to take the reins, but quite yeah. often they're pushed into it. Yeah. I mean, I think it works differently in Switzerland, but I believe, you know, a lot of the French ski schools are kind of co-ops. Mm-hmm. Um, so that people get voted in and yeah, it's kind of, can be a very thankless job. Yeah, that's true. Listener, if you can hear some stuff in the background, we're in Italy. Of course, the, the thing about Italy is there's always this sort of ambient noise in the background, but there's an international food festival going on outside. And so if you can hear a man shouting, that's what that is. It's got some weird Italian dance singing. Yeah. You know, there'll be a disco outside. going on. Of course, it's three o'clock in the afternoon, so why wouldn't there be? <laughs> um, yeah, so that's how we know Steve, but that's, yeah, that was a real blast from the past because. Um, they were good times, really, really good times back in those days. You know, unregulated market, doing deals here, left, right, and centre, running all over the country, doing cool stuff. Golf days, loads of corporate hospitality. Brilliant. Think, yeah, brilliant. the world was a different place back then in anything. It was a lot. Uh, do, yeah. what, do a lot more of what you kind of wanted. If I think of some of the stuff that we got away with in the office that time, it was nuts. Yeah. You know, like you, you wouldn't, you just wouldn't get away with it these days, at all. You know, you'd be you'd be fired for like sexual harassment or you know yeah, improper conduct or all sorts of stuff. You know, going out and getting hammered at lunchtime and coming back yeah. trying to do your job in the afternoon. Thinking you made loads of money, but actually yeah. you were just reading the wrong bit of paper. Yeah, exactly that. Well, I, my my strategy used to be go and do all of your work, like really work. I still do the same thing now, like work really really hard in the morning and, then and go and get laid at lunchtime and just kind of hide. Away. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So tell me your story. You always a skier from the beginning. Um, yes, a bit ra- well, random. I didn't, relatively late, I mean I didn't start skiing until I was 14, which, mm-hmm. okay, for people that, you know, take up skiing at 45, sounds ridiculous. Um, yeah. So I lived near on the sort of Surrey Hampshire border south of England mm-hmm. in between a place called Aldershot and Guildford okay um, I used to pretend to go to school in Guildford okay and randomly enough they had a really small dry slope at the school oh yeah I think it was only one of I think I might have been the only one in the UK I'm not sure but it was I'm going to say a really small dry slope okay. uh, it was about 40, 30 metres long Maybe 35. Okay. And no lift. You walked up, you walked down, you skied down. And I, to be honest, I wasn't really that interested for ages. I was into BMX and trying to jump off the biggest jump we could build up the common at the back of the woods. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I think I was 14 and it was a kind of PE lesson. They used to occasionally go skiing. Yeah. And uh, I, put skis on and that I kind of suddenly was like this is great Um, and it makes me laugh now thinking especially my 12 year old he's he's very much into skiing and you know during the Covid lockdown there was only a drag lift open that they trained on Uh and he's like oh I'm getting a bit bored of this slope and then (laughs) I would just love to take him there and show him where that what the deal was Anyway, we lived um, near an Aldershot dry slope, uh-huh. which was a huge 90-odd metres with a drag lift, see. which was just a revelation in every way. Yeah. Um, and I suppose 
I became the cheeky kid that would help hand out the kit. Yeah. And pretty much skied for free up there um, the whole time. It's like a stray cat, really. It's a common story in so many things. I was just reading um, Shane Burns. He's a big guy in like British superbikes back yeah. in the day, and he did exactly the same. Like he was the guy that was hanging around the motorbike shop, like cleaning bikes, and you know just. Well, my fa- I used that. There was a ski centre, and at the back there was a, a ski shop, um, and I used to work in the ski shop. Sort of as I got to about fifteen, I suppose I worked in the ski shop. I used to lie all the time and say that the school's on strike, <laughs> and then just go and work at. The, the the ski shop and the guy that used to do all all the servicing of the skis was to be honest he was a bit over it it's mm. a family run business and it was the son that used to do the ski servicing so if I would go up there I could knock out sort of 30 40 pairs of skis and it saved him doing it and yeah. paid some money and then I was sort of in in the race team at the dry slope um, again no idea what I was doing uh, and, and it, this isn't sound, supposed to be cocky. My skiing was basically fueled on all it was was ability to balance and slide down and a bit of natural talent. Mm-hmm. And that's not meant to sound cocky. That's just saying I had zero technique. Yeah. So it was just fear. You taught yourself more or less. To start with, yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, yeah. There was guidance and and various bits of, and bobs, but. I used to, I remember skiing slalom, I used to kind of go around a slalom pole like I was sniffing my armpit, like a pendulum kind of thing, skiing down. Um, got picked for the England schools team after about, this is probably four months of skiing. Okay. Um, went to Gloucester's, did all right in the competition, and, and then you had to prove that you'd been on snow three times. Why? Because you went on this training camp in in Saint Anton, okay. and they had, you know, they were just making sure that people had some right. experience. I managed to get three lift passes off other people that had been skiing, cut out the photos, yeah, stick them off, and that was that was your proof of, of uh, skiing. Yeah, <laughs> so went off to Saint Anton, um, and nearly. Literally, and there's no lie, literally nearly died on the first run. Right. So by this time, I'd skied probably every day for nine months. Okay. To, you know, for dry slope, yeah. to an okay level, because it was just, I was passionate about it. I was probably skiing three, four, five hours a day. Wow. Race training. By that time, I was getting some technique and some sort yeah. of idea what to do. And I remember just getting on snow. Have you skied on dry slope much? I have. I learned on dry slope. I was going to say to you earlier, I went back recently. Did I tell you this? No, I went. I went back. I was randomly was meeting up with a friend of mine, and he said, "Oh, can we meet at Stanborough?" I don't know why. Like it's terrible, but it was middle of British summer. And I said, "Look, I got a vague feeling there's a dry slope around here." And there's one at Gosley, which I skied on a lot when I was a kid. Mm. And I kind of just said to him, Look, do you mind if we just take a wonder here? Because it would be interesting to show Zoe this. And like, she was like, what is this stuff? This isn't a ski slope. It's like the wrong colour for a start. It's about, you know, it's flat more or yeah. less. You look at it and you're like, I can't believe I spent so much time here. You know, but that's been the same it was, for you. Yeah, but I mean, the good thing with a, with a dry slope, because the terrain is so limited, you get quite 
I suppose, imaginative with what you can do. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we used to ski up and down there and do all sorts of stupid things. Yeah. Um, you know, we but you a, do get that kind of monoboard. We used to have this monoboard that we used to ski. We used to call it Jake the peg leg. <laughs> so you'd have two people and the monoboard on the inside leg, mm-hmm. and then a ski on your outside leg and sort of ski down trying to link turns. Anyway, the the point is, I turn up in Austria. From a for a good skier to ski slalom on a dry slope, you're always trying to generate speed. Yeah, it's all you. It's all about going faster, not really about speed control. Mm-hmm. So I just got on this slope, and I remember skiing off doing kind of like sort of short slalomy, whatever you'd want to call them, by what I was doing yeah. on a dry slope. And probably within about 10, 15 turns, I was going four <laughs> or five times, <laughs> faster than I've ever been. Yeah. And I, there was a slight roll, and I thought in my head, I thought, I'm going to go over this roll and then kind of slow down but again i had no idea of a mountain yeah all the shot is not a mountain no <laughs> all, all the shot 1850 yeah. um but it wasn't a roller the piece actually went around to the right and i went off this ridge and had i just remember being in the air for long enough to think you idiot you've, you've waited <laughs> nine months and i literally flew through the air and i could see these the Austrian, the big avalanche barriers. Oh yeah. Like down, because it was a steep pitch. Yeah. And I landed before them, bounced over them, and they were there because it was a tarmac road. Wow. And then just went into trees and stopped, rolled and stopped, and I did not have a mark on me. I was (laughs) absolute, apart from (laughs) maybe my underpants. um, (laughs) Yeah, and then I was, that was like, hold on, this is a different, yeah, this yeah, is a not... slightly different ball game. <laughs> um, and yeah, survived that trip, came back, uh, carried on dry slope races, eventually got picked for the England Alpine team, and kind of, yeah, went, had a few sports scholarships, was racing in Europe, mm-hmm. but always felt very much like I was snuck in the back door of a party because. It was quite late. My parents didn't ski. I didn't come from a sort of yeah. skiing family, so it was always a bit. I suppose yeah, I got to a, a fairly good level, but it was very rapid, yeah, uh, very quick, and I suppose yeah, I always felt like I was sort of all the other kids were like going on ski holidays. And... Yeah, a lot of the other kids in those days were in alpine teams and had probably been skiing since five and yeah. and been going with parents and also race training, and so it was like I was very late to the party but it, in a good way it's reassuring you catch up though right I mean, yeah i think i think that's all i did the power yeah. of like focus practice essentially yeah and training wasn't training it was just what i wanted to do and it yeah. wasn't it never really felt um like it was training mm-hmm. it just was just it was to do. what i'm gonna do i'm gonna pretend to go to school get get off the bus go change i'd have all the other clothes in the bag and <laughs> my brother and sister were going to the same school so i'd walk down to the bus stop get on the school bus yeah walk off and then turn around and get the bus back and i think you could just about get away with doing that you know mm. your parents didn't know and <sighs> it's a different time then yeah you know not in such close contact i was bad at school as well i was just bad i wasn't a bad kid i was didn't really know it but really dyslexic and didn't get on and 
sort of the classic, yeah, you're stupid, you're... It's a lot of dyslexics, key instructors, lots. Tobogganists as well. And uh, musicians. And yeah. Do you have any brothers or sisters? Yeah, but older brother, I'm the youngest, yeah, you're older the youngest, brother. I was about to say, you're a classic yeah. little younger brother. Older right? brother, older sister. Yeah. Um, and yeah, just, and it, it, I wasn't a bad kid, but did a few bad things, as in with other, I think when you're in all the bottom groups at school, oh, yeah. you get, I don't want to say sound horrible, but you <laughs> you just, get yeah. all the dodgy kids. Yeah. Um, and they, they weren't like my mates as such, but I used to hang out with them. And I'm thinking you get, you're bored. Mm-hmm. I remember we were driving around Guildford in a stolen car and I didn't steal the car, I don't know how to steal a car, but but it was like, well, what am I going to do? I'm, this is exciting. Yeah, you're in it, right? <clears throat> and we ditched this car, we got chased by the police. I remember like, hiding in this bush, watching the police running up and down and just knowing that this, this is not... <laughs> it's not a good situation. It's not it? a good thing. So <laughs> I think the skiing came around at a really good time. Yeah, where well, it focused that energy into something. Yeah. Yeah. Because I didn't want to be stealing cars. I didn't want to be doing bad stuff. I mean, yeah, a bit of excitement, but... Um, it's like the crowd you run with, right? It's just... <coughs> especially when you're yeah. at school, because you're kind of... You're in the class that you're in. You don't really know much more yeah. than that. And I wasn't I wasn't a kid that was going to tell the police to sort off and, I'm, you know, I'm hard nut. I wasn't yeah. at all. Right? I was from a normal... Yeah. You know, a normal family. I think my mum and dad taught me what was right or wrong but it was it was more interested in doing that than sitting in a yeah. maths class pretending to listen I hear you so, so that was that you're skiing at a reasonable level and then where does that take you so um, I suppose I got to about 17 and you know we were doing fist races and, and spending time normally uh, trying to work all summer to try and make the money to go over and train in the winters. Um, my parents weren't really in a situation to help out. Mm-hmm. And it was hard, you know, it's a hard struggle to work all summer and do all the jobs you can. Yeah. Go over there. And again, turning up at these races and feeling a bit, mm. what the hell am I doing here? Um, having some okay results you know and doing okay but and it got to i think i was about 17 completely blew my knee to pieces mm-hmm. uh, in alton mark on a giant slalom had the biggest crash one of the biggest crashes i think i've had straddled the giant slalom gate which is really hard to do yeah Hit the gate marshal, I think broke two, three of his ribs. He was in a hell of a state. I didn't, again, came out absolutely fine. And I was sponsored by Dina Star Look and Nordica, which used to be Europa Sport Mm -hmm. back in the day in the UK. And my race skis were on super, super tight. And I didn't even change my skis. And I literally, after this massive crash, put my training skis on my shoulder and traversed across. Went off piste onto a sort of flat bit of road and tore my knee to pieces oh, really? doing like jogging speed after having this amazing wow. crap there's no you know it's like when you see skiers fall slow sometimes yeah yeah, um, yeah. and stupidly I had my race skis on which weren't going to come off mm-hmm. um, so that refocused kind of I think I chose to, yeah the racing bit was done I think yeah and it wasn't 
it didn't look possible to get any further without robbing a bank or coming into a lot of money. Well, I was just going to say that because I've just sponsored to sponsored chuck some money into a couple of kids that I know who are just about to go into fist. One is my next door neighbor, lovely kid called uh, Quentin, and the other one's a guy called Axel, who's kind of, I've known for years that he's been skiing around Morgia. And um, those guys have had to raise, so Quentin is off to the sports school in Brig to race fist this year and he's doing that. He had to raise something like 30 grand to do that. Axel must have been similar. And it's just bananas. You know, and these guys are on this, what is it, I believe in you thing. So they're just asking everyone they know to you know, yeah. chip in. I think they both made what they were, or close to what they were looking for, but it's it's crazy how much it costs to go I racing. I think as well, these days you can, with things like social media and all that, which, you know, is a bit of a double-edged sword. It's such a weird thing in some ways, but mm. it's a lot easier to get your story out. Yeah, that's for sure. Especially if you're kind of savvy with the video and blah blah, but it's. I had a couple of scholarships, um, but unfortunately, I think. You know, if you want anything hard enough, you could probably make it work. But back in those days, um, I would say ninety-nine percent of the children or the kids that were racing, their parents could support them to an okay degree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and if you didn't have that, it became really hard. So, yeah, I, the racing came to an end. Um, went back to the UK and um, all I wanted to do was go skiing mm-hmm. because I'd never really been on a... I've never been on a ski holiday. Sounds weird, but it always been training. Yeah, yeah, or, you go with a purpose, right? Yeah. Um, Dennis Edwards was the England coach at the time and he was very adamant that, you know, we weren't allowed to go off jumps and we weren't allowed to ski off piece. And when I say weren't allowed, you know, obviously mm-hmm. this getting to the top of the slalom, there was a lot of dicking around, obviously. <laughs> yeah. But um, it's, it's one of those weird things. You can't, you, someone says you can't really do that. It's what you end up wanting to do. Of course, yeah. So after spending a bit of time in the UK, which was fine. Um, start, I still do. I still do a bit of music stuff and a bit of DJing. Um, did that for a couple of years, bits on on and off, and then decided I want to go back to the mountains. So uh, through some contacts, I ended up getting a job in Alpes running a bar, mm-hmm. the underground bar in Alpes If anyone knows it out there, um, and I had a great time. It was the worst snow season ever. Okay. But within that time, um, I ended up going to Sir Chevalier, which is now home, mm-hmm. um, because the people that owned the hotel bar in Alpes they had a sister hotel in Sir Chevalier. Okay. There was more snow in Sir Chevalier that year, and they needed help. Yeah. So I went over there for about a month, which right. was the first time, apart from they had, used to have the English champs in Sir Chevalier. Yeah. So that was kind of half of the season in outdoors and a bit of the season in Sir Chevalier. That was my first season running bars, playing music and skiing. Okay. Skiing what I wanted to ski. Yeah. Which wasn't gates, 
No, imagine. After all. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, it was a great... I'm really pleased that I did that. Yeah, um, gives you a great base, right? A lot of the, the top kind of off-piece skiers and stuff have all got race background. Yeah, I think, you know, and, and it was a great way to start. Um, but, yeah, just being able to get up at... I mean, I, it makes me laugh now. Look at season years that come out. Yeah. Not many more of them in France nowadays, but we used to stay up very late most nights, but we'd still always be on that first lift. Good snow or no snow or... Yeah, yeah. You just go for the sake of it, right? Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, worked in outdoors, uh, Chevalier, that season, running bars, doing this and that, um, and then I came back to the UK and got a random phone call from somebody saying, if you want a job in South Africa teaching skiing well let's say so well oh, it, it kind of gets to there but right. it, it was um, a thing called Springbok Ski Club huh. so it's based in Johannesburg yeah and they had these they called them ski decks but it's like the Chelsea or whatever yeah, like a rolling thing. but a larger yeah. version of that the guy made them he had them made yeah um, so they're you know longest ski slope in the world if you don't get a power cut do you know the kids will use those now yeah the races they're going to those yeah. all the time to drill and that, that have movement. the things you yeah. can superimpose slalom gates on yeah. them and mirror and yeah yeah okay. well if you imagine that in a really much more Heath Robinson built yeah. thing and they used to have like Shagpar carpet on right. I mean it was just carpet it wasn't anything special uh-huh. um, we used to laugh when they changed the carpet because it was a bit longer it would be like powder days um, <laughs> a bit more resistant yeah yeah and um worked there and they had a kind of set up with Verbier so right. bounced backwards and forwards did did a bit of time in Johannesburg and then went to Verbier and taught the clients there do you know a guy called Neil Bastian he did the, all of this know, I'm sure of it South African guy was into like boxing MMA that kind of stuff no but how old is he he's kind of I want to say like our age probably my age yeah I'm 74 <laughs> <laughs> my knees feel like they're 74 <laughs> um, okay no I thought that would be like be, amazing uh, I don't know I don't know so the, the weird thing was when I was in Johannesburg and it yeah. was the year that Nelson Mandela got voted in right so I can't for life when I see him I'm going to ask him if he knows you yeah. he does I don't, I don't know if I he might have been maybe coming he into might it around when I sort but of he finished. definitely did the whole Springbok Sea Club and the the, the, the Verbier thing definitely. yeah and I don't know I think it only went on a few more there was a bit of a Swedish connection there was a couple of Swedish people involved with it yeah. um, a couple of English guys okay um, but while I was in Johannesburg at a party randomly bumped into two twins that were setting up Tiffendale which is the slope in Lesotho right okay so ended up finishing with Springbok after a couple of years. The, the boss man was quite difficult to work for and okay. kind of come to the end of it. So, yeah. so much skiing on carpet you can do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but randomly met these guys. And if you've not seen it, look at Tiffendale. It's in, it's in Lesotho, up a mountain. Yeah. In the arsehole of nowhere. Yeah. You have to drive through, uh, it's about an hour and a half up from a little village called Rhodes, which right. it's got one phone line yeah. in the village an hour and a half away. Um, you know, in the middle of nowhere, and you drive up through this farmer's land, and I kind of 
was right at the start of it. So I, my job was to train the instructors. Yeah. I was in charge of entertainment. Okay. Weirdly enough. All right. And um, in charge of the ski hire. I huh. kind of got rid of the ski hire after a while because yeah. it was just too much and really so, so in a boot you can smell in the love. <laughs> yeah. And uh, stayed up there for about seven months. But wow. we were involved right from the start, so building yeah. uh, the infrastructure, putting lifts in. Wow. And it's a mad because it's it looks quite Scottish, but it's also you can see it's quite African. Yeah. Um, and to be standing there at three in the morning making snow on this strip yeah. of, of snow in the middle of nowhere was quite... I've seen some images of it. It's because the only place you can ski there, isn't it? Like in yeah, I think a couple of people tried other places, but yeah. it's, uh, obviously they did a lot of their homework because obviously winter's dry. Mm-hmm. So they had to make reservoirs and make the snow. Um, but we had all these guys that were working kind of... You know, the, the local guys, some of them kind of used to work on farms nearby. And as soon as we finished working, these these guys would come out, the black guys would come out yeah. with these little sledges and sledge down and just, you know, they'd never really seen snow before. Yeah, that's so cool. And that came to an end. Um, and randomly ended up uh, going back to Verbier, did a season working for K2. Right. Uh, doing a bit of stuff for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that led me back to well, to Stockholm for a very short amount of time. Okay. So the classic Swedish girlfriend. Oh yeah. And yeah. end up getting a job on a dive boat in Egypt for seven months. Yeah, it's all very random on the Red Sea. Just going wherever the wind blows. You. Yeah, it was just all very kind of yeah, just seeing what was going on. Yeah. And I think I pretty much decided on the boat. Um, that I was going to go back to France, back to Sir Chevalier. Mm-hmm. I had a lot of friends there and it seemed like a natural thing to do. Uh, I think then, even then, I thought, yeah, I just need to go back, pass my ski instructor exams, mm. and maybe go back into that. Okay. So, a couple of years, so I went back, worked in, uh, ended up working in the bar again that I worked in years before, uh, which is great. It's, hang out with friends and then after I think two years of that I thought yeah definitely have to get out of this business it was great fun but yeah grind you down yes there's only so much you can stand behind a late night party bar and it's great fun but no I've seen plenty of people who've done it and they you know it gets you in the end you know you just see the same yeah thing and coming back to what we said you know once you one, I think once you know you can go to work and you're not really learning anything and it's all quite humdrum then. Yeah. Uh, so took start went into the French system. Okay. Um, oh, you went that route. So at that time, yeah. did you have choices of route? Uh, yeah, there probably would have always been, but I didn't really think about the choice. I didn't really. I was there in France. Mm-hmm. Um, in the French system, so you have test technique. Yeah. Which is a slalom. No problem. You did did a couple of days. There's a good there's a good base of skiers in Serge Valier. So it's you know the home of Luc Alfond and yeah. Kevin Page and Benjamin Malkion and, and those guys that were all kind of world champs and yeah. you know, up there. Kevin Page is now the trainer for the men's French giant slalom team. You know, so there was all these guys and they they would sometimes stick up training 
runs. And again, this comes back to the same way I, I used to kind of feel going to these races. It's like yeah. suddenly I'm skiing with these amazing racers and I'm just floating this some bloke from all the shops. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I did three days with them in training a bit of slalom and did, took the test technique, um, got that. And then there's a pre-formation, which is like a mm. two-week teaching exam. My French was shocking. I didn't know what the hell was going on. Just smiling and nodding my head, copying yeah. the other guys. Yeah. And I would never go down the run first. I'd watch, listen to what they were saying, pick up yeah. 10%. Roughly what's going And then on. watch what the guy demoed. Yeah. And then kind of copy that. Um, and there was a written exam in there, which I didn't take. Well, I drew some stickmen, I think. In snow plows and things like that, but it um, and sat and I was convinced that I hadn't passed. Yeah, because uh, on the last day you do it, there's like a jury thing. You pick that thing out of a hat. Yeah, it might be uh, you know I don't know snow plow link snow plow turns for yeah, example, yeah. and you do a demonstration and there's maybe three four guys that you don't know, mm-hmm. um, and you ski down and. They ask you maybe three or four questions. Okay. And every question they asked me, I just said, "Chikampong." Ah. Okay. That was one of my phrases. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I thought, "There's no way I've passed this." Well, how have you been running a bar in session for years? Well, the the weird thing was, a I'm not, uh, I'm quite good at being lazy with things I don't necessarily like all of the French people who's come in the bar yeah wanted to speak English okay classic it was yeah, quite yeah. A, it was quite an English bar anyway it was owned by Brits and it was very to be fair it was very international we had Dutch tour operators yeah, Danish yeah. tour operators had Scandies all over the place Kiwis Australians yeah, Brits yeah. and French but the, the language of the bar was English British yeah English. yeah yeah um I've done that before. I, that was my experience. I was living in Chatel. Was the was the the, the same thing? It was quite hard to find people to speak French with because everyone wants to practice yeah. their English. Yeah, exactly. Me. And eventually, you know, I'll forever be grateful for him. But there was a guy called French Miche who, you know, took the time even when he was drunk to kind of you know yeah. listen to me trying to get this together and he give me little tips here and there and it was it's really cool. Like, I made big progress that way. I think. He's yeah, got you've got a, you, depending on the person, I mean, I've got a good friend who's, and she's just so annoying. I mean, she, she'll go to Italy and do an Italian course and come back speaking yeah. Italian. Um, I'm probably the opposite. I said to my French teacher at school, it's a stupid language. I'm never going to speak it. <laughs> this is a waste of time. I think I might have just walked out. I said the same in my French class. Uh, not French class, maths class. Yeah. As I'm never going to use this. Never going to work for a bank. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah, it kind of, I remember sat, I went back to the, the bar that I used to work in, and obviously because you know, all my friends were still there, and I, I just remember sitting there thinking, yeah. that was a waste of time. Uh-huh. Purely from the French yeah. side of it. Um, and also the, the main formatter, the main coach or the guy in charge of it, um he gave me such a high note or a, a mark for actually being on the course that yeah. it overran the low the low mark I got in oh, all wow. the, so the average was spot on it pushed me over the 
what I needed to pass. So I was like, gee, wow. somehow I passed. Great. Um, and then I was working in the French ski school. Not, Do you think not that ESF. part of that was that they want they want they wanted someone there who's like English? Um, no, but well, he the way it works in France, and a lot of people kind of think it's all controlled by the ESF, but it's 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 the sports department that run those exams. So he's employed by the sports department. Oh right, so it wasn't. There's no agenda. Um, he did make a point because obviously it's all last starting to kick off with the whole sort of Bayesy and, and mm. French thing. Um, kind of said to me in English you know I respect you going through this system rather than just yeah going to do a British one or whatever and then saying why can't I work in France oh that's cool um, and he's that a really nice guy in the 90s uh, yeah it would have been yeah yeah uh, early 90s I suppose yeah mid 90s he's actually world champion this guy he passed me yeah. he's a masters world champion right. Stalin. Pierre de Clinclin um so yeah, I started working in the French ski school and did the Euro test. Again, just having that background of, of mm-hmm. racing. I think I did three days training for it, got back on that, passed that. Um, and then I, I suppose I was just starting to wait and work out whether I could carry on in the French system because my French was a bit ropey. There's a lot of written stuff. Yeah. There's two degrees after that, isn't there? Uh, no, or there's one. quite a few. You've got, three, I think, three or four stages. Uh, the Premier Seek, Deuxième Seek, Troisième. And then there's an off-piece module. And oh, then right. there's a snowboard module. And then there's a course setting. Okay. Trassage. Uh-huh. And then Final. Wow. So there's a lot more. Yeah, I've, I'm largely ignorant of what goes into the French yeah. system. And I've been looking to find someone to talk to about that what's funny having I mean not that um, having gone through parts of it mm. um, and then I looked into I contacted Basie purely one of the main reasons was as well that there's a massive traffic jam in the French system oh yeah so you've got to get your hours working yeah but even if you had them there's quite uh, you know, there's a lot of people in France who want to do the become ski instructors because yeah. the pay's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, that's one of the reasons why the Eurotest is there, isn't it? It separates all the guys from Paris out and, you know, yeah. puts them to one side. I think at the end of the day, the way, I suppose if I come back and say that I contacted Basie and said, this is what I've done with racing. Mm. I was national team. This is the points I had. This is... Um, I've done these things in the French system. Where do I fit in? Just to just to see what would happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and having done a little bit of both, it's just quite funny how different. You know, Basie want you to pass the exam. They want you there, and they're quite friendly. Depending on who you get within the French, I mean, one of the guys in the French system, and he was part of the jury. Mm. We were in a cable car coming out the bottom from Sir Chevalier, and. Uh, I didn't know what he said to me, but he looked at me and went, basically said, you, you English, you haven't got a chance of passing this. Mm. I smiled and laughed at him because I, I didn't <laughs> yeah, understand didn't what know. he said, yeah, which yeah. ironically massively wound him up. Yeah. Um, and the, the guy that was on in my group on this on the pre-formation was like, he's, there was one guy in there that spoke English, so I stuck to him like mm. glue. <laughs> 
and he said, what are you doing? And this guy, I think he was a bit of a big shot. He was in the right. French team and, uh, da, da, you know, he was opening Euro tests. Right, and, okay. But I had <laughs> <laughs> no idea who he was. Um, but it, it's just such a different vibe. Mm-hmm. It's like, I remember this guy explaining things and, and just waiting for answers to come back, but there was not really a... They don't... Obviously, this is my personal experience. It's maybe mm-hmm. not the same, and I'm sure maybe it's changed slightly, but it was very much, you know, if you haven't got the level, you're not going to pass. I don't care. One could say that is the francophone way. Yeah. The French way. You know, it's like yeah. the default answer is no, get lost. Similar to waiters. Um, <laughs> can, I, can I not have cheese on my pizza? <laughs> oh. But he does cheese on it. <laughs> crazy. <laughs> A few, a few huffs and puffs. You get there in the end, but it was just a very different, yeah, vibe. Um, yeah. So then I came into the Basie sort of two thirds through, I suppose. Okay. So you convert into Basie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was when it was three levels back. No, I think it was one of the first years when it was one, two, three, four. Okay. And I think, if I remember rightly, I came in. They called it a three tech reset okay because it was only one week and i think the tech three tech was two weeks yeah and they kind of threw me in said that you can do a week of the tech okay um but if you've done test technique and you're actually blitz that yeah i mean it's all i think those that was their their thinking on it yeah um and bear in mind as well i'd already already been teaching on the dry slope when i was 16 and Mm. I'd already done two seasons in Verbier teaching. I mean, the Swiss ski, we were kind with Springbok Ski Club, we were under the Swiss ski school. I understand. Yeah. So we had a Swiss ski school uniform on. Yeah. But we had we went skiing with the director. He watched us ski down the slope and went, yeah, you're fine. Okay. But again, this is back in the Wild West. Period of... Um, no, when you were talking about that, when he was teaching Verbier, he was nothing proud of when he got that red jacket on. He thought that was the best thing ever. Yeah. It was a weird one because they used to give us a red jacket, but we, we didn't get red trousers, which was quite random. I remember that. Um, it's all about the red trousers. Yeah. <laughs> so a couple of years in Verbio. Um, yeah. Verbio was great, great fun as well. Okay. Um, but then presumably you worked your way through the rest of the the Basie system, popped out the top of that. Yeah, came through that. I was quite going into it. I was quite interested in maybe going into the trainers or yeah. going into that, and there was a lot, you know, in, invitation, not invitations because I don't think they really invite anyone just to become a trainer. You get um, pushed from certain people. You, you want to say. come through the system, and to be honest, I just didn't fancy it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you went back to Seattle? Back to Sir Chevalier, the, literally the year after I completed all my exams and was full cert, um, which I think was, yeah, just two years in the sort of doing couple of weeks with Basie. Yeah. Um I wanted really wanted to get out of the ski school environment. Okay. Just from a point of view of working in a French ski school. Yeah. Um yeah, I got I got a bit fed up with going to welcome meetings as an English person selling lessons to Brits and then turning up the next day to go to work, and then the older French guys that had been in ski school longer were getting all the work that I'd gone out to get. Classic. Yeah. 
and it's the system you know it's the way it works it's the way it's set up um basically it's a list system yeah the guy at the top of the list regardless of what walks in the door i mean they do try and tune it a little bit and say you know 60 year old jean-marc doesn't isn't a very good snowboarder but if a snowboarder walks in the door he might he gets it get oh, he gets the choice to turn it down right yeah kind of and yeah. they they did towards the end of it they did try and make the system a bit fairer mm-hmm. but I remember just, just thinking like I'm gonna jump out of this and change it change what I'm doing mm-hmm. um, and set up independently completely independently um, and that, I suppose in a lot of ways I'm still kind of doing that but yeah so I don't really teach groups I don't I t- I'll teach groups of people that are a group. Yeah, that come together. Yeah. Yeah, same as, yeah, we do that. Yeah. But, but we don't make groups. Yeah, and I find, you know, if you're a ski school and you've got 10 instructors, then you can maybe make that work. Yeah, you need a certain, yeah. But you we, need to be able to put people up, people down, sideways, whatever, and, and be able to make it. Um, yeah, and also I think the thing that might have just died on its, died on its butt the last two or three years is bringing groups of random people together. No one wanted that in the last three years. No one asked Well, that. yeah. And I mean, the thing right. that I used to hate more than anything was when they used to randomly put French and English groups together. Yeah. Because the, the, the client or the guest or whatever you want to call it, the skier, they, it's a massive generalisation, but they generally want very different things. The Brits, if they're honest, if you do four or five runs on the same slope, if that's an ideal slope for, for them to practice the skill that you're working on, yeah. they are happy as hell. Yeah. Um, they learn differently, don't they? Yeah, I think it's a like well, the cultural thing. I mean, it's a really interesting part of, I think, coaching any anything. Mm. I mean, I'm lucky enough to have had all sorts of um, different different nationalities and different people, and it's... That to me is one of the most fascinating things that when you're teaching people from different countries how they learn, yeah, why they learn differently. I had a Brazilian guy a couple of years ago and he he was so eager to learn and what's next, what's next? I just wanna what's mm-hmm. and, and we were talking about it afterwards and I, I said, What is what is it with you and this whole just let's learn this, move on when you're ready to move. and he said, I don't we were talking about it culturally, he said, I I think in Brazil we it's a bit like I could be shot tomorrow, so yeah, I want to learn it now. This is what he sort of said about it. Wow. But um, the French and the Brits, a, gr- a mixed group of French and Brits, generally speaking, doesn't work very well. Because I said the Br- Brits are going to, they're there to learn and happy. A lot of what most of the French guys would want is a little bit of a, a guide with some tips. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's it's not a problem, but trying to but you see it you see when the because the, 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 um, we were on the the, the, the Port Soleil route obviously and you see it a lot you see these kind of groups following the SF guys around and they'll arrive at the top of the lift in Morgan and they just come across mm. the village from Super Chatel and the guy you know, be one of the old boys with a hat and a you know, cigarette hanging out of his mouth and he'll be like that over there. and he'd tell them all about all the mountains and he'd be like that over there that's the old smuggling route and the French guy's going, wow, this is amazing. He's telling me, he's introducing me to his region. And like, he's proud of it because this is where he's from. And, you know, every now and then he might say, oh, you need to lean forward a little bit. 
Yeah, and Bernard said, okay, I want to learn to pole plunge. Yeah, yeah, but, but, well, yeah. but yeah, exactly. But I, I do say to my guys, that's really important. You, and and uh, uh, my old boss, I've told the listeners this before, my old boss, um, a guy I really respect, a guy called Ernest, used to say the same thing. So you've got to know the name of all the mountains because you've got to tell people, you know, about where you are, right? This is really important stuff. I think if, you, yeah, if you're a chef, You've got to be able to cook yeah. this. You've yeah. got to be able to cook that. You've got to be able. To, yeah. But when you've got, I don't know. If you can only cook one thing for your group, and yeah. you've got four vegans yeah, yeah, yeah. and four people that yeah. are hunters, yeah, it's obviously very hard to make them all happy. I think it's really, really important if you can just stop every now and then and go down. This is that, and this is that, and this is why this is important. You know, around here, I think it's it's a it's a it's a cool thing. It just shows you're just more than like a teaching yeah. robot, right? That you're you're part of where you are 100 percent, and it's i mean where in search valley there's it's quite um interesting because there's a lot going on there for the sort of war years obviously right in the it's frontalia region right like you, yeah yeah and things like the shabaton mountain where mussolini stuck naval cannons on top of the mountain i mean it's crazy when you look back yeah. um and the french shot at it and sort of blew the top of the mountain and it looks like a volcano right and the emplacements are still kind of up there all ruined but oh, wow to be able to stand there and point around, I mean, I remember being up there as a very young ski instructor and standing on the mountain, Sir Chevalier. Yeah. And one of the clients was asking, Where is, where is Sir Chevalier? I was like, No, you can't see it from here. It's too cloudy. We were standing, <laughs> standing on it. <laughs> but I think, but it's, it's that thing, yeah, as a, especially if you're spending more time, if you're spending mm. maybe three hours every morning with a group. Also, it's a good time when you can see somebody slightly fatigued or you know that that person maybe just needs a minute or two. Yeah. Slow the lesson down a bit, have a little chat, as long as you're saying interesting things. And I think so. It's more, you can't do that all the shot, Trustlet. Can't do that all the shot, Trustlet. Not as interesting. Point out the SAS base or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> the Ah, So you went independent straight away, and how long have you been? Doing, you're still doing it, obviously, but um, not to the extent yeah, that you were doing. Still doing it, hundred uh, percent. Still doing it, but it's not. Uh, it's not as. I suppose, before going into sort of doing a lot of film stuff, and and uh, it was the main part, I suppose, of my professional work. Yeah. Um, hundred percent. Still do it. Loyal clients. Nice, loyal clients, new clients as well, but it's it's not week in, week out. Mm -hmm. um, I do, it's been a bit weird since COVID, but working with the Rosnall Group. Mm -hmm. um, so Rosnall Group, if you're not aware, is Dina Starr, Look, and then obviously anything with Rosnall written on. Mm -hmm. um, and working with them a little bit, producing content, film content, um, it's quite nice to do a week of filming stuff, uh, maybe testing equipment, yeah, skiing with some some of their guys, uh, trying to film stuff, and then a week of teaching, yeah, um, and various different things. Keeps it fresh, doesn't it? I'm trying to get to a place now yeah. with the ski school where I'm not tried last year, but I didn't because it was we were one instructor short all season and just had to work, you know, do the hours, but. The um, I'm trying to get to a place where everyone else does the work and I'm doing the work I want to do, which is different because you come to the mountain with a different mentality as opposed to here's some work, I've got to get through it before I go and 
do the other stuff that I've got to do. Whereas now I, I want it to be in a place where I sort of show up and like the, the thing that I'm doing is that is the thing that I'm focused on at that time and that is what I'm doing. And you you, you have more um, more concentration towards it. You know, and, and it's it almost like it you really can step good. back and see a slightly bigger picture yeah. rather than yeah. being against the cold face. Exactly. Um, yeah. And uh, so I'm hoping that that's going to be what it looks like this season. But it's because I think when you give it, I've noticed that when you go with that kind of mindset, you deliver some really like kick-ass sessions. You know, and they're I think really good. Anything again coming, you know, we've kind of brushed on it already. But any when you become saturated, and it's just a nine to five. Yeah. Um. Yeah, when there's a massive potential for your work t- quality to come down. Yeah. Um, it's all right. It's still working. And, yeah, do I care as much? And the clients will definitely pick up on that. Yeah. Okay, maybe not pick up on it, but I think your lessons will become repetitive. You'll, you won't think differently. Mm-hmm. You'll become okay. That person skis like this, so I'm just going to do that lesson. Yes. And you almost choose, and it's something I see a lot. You almost see people choosing that. I've got five, six lessons in my bag. That person skis like this. I'll get lesson three out, and it becomes repetitive. There's no uh, fine tuning it to that person, mm-hmm. and not spending the time to to know get to know that person as quick as you can because sometimes I might have somebody for two hours I'll never see them again yeah that's true. depending yeah, on their yeah. budget yeah um, you know not every skier can turn up and spend 2,000 euros on lessons a week that's true um, that, that is very accurate because the temptation isn't it is, is and it's not our fault as professionals I think often you see the same problems with people skiing over and over and over and over again and the temptation is it's like yeah you're right exactly right like this guy is doing this this he misses this particular skill I've taught this topic in this way before and I know that if I teach it in this way I get results therefore that's what I'm just going to drop into the situation and magically fix it but you don't like if you're if you're working loads and loads and loads and loads of hours it's becoming feels like work you don't give it that kind of extra twist you know yeah, a little I think bit of extra seasoning or something that you need to make it really good I would say that's something that if I was to go back in time and think yeah as a younger instructor or coach whatever you want to call yourself you kind of do that you kind of go right that person skis like this they need to work on this mm. let's do that yeah. um, whereas I find it what I call the kind of chairlift ride, the person probably thinks that I'm being polite, mm-hmm. just having an idle chit chat. Yeah. But what you're trying to do is build up as quickly as you can. Yeah. You, you know, as a as an instructor, you're going to see the person ski. Yeah. You probably see already the way they've walked to you, yeah. the way they've carried their skis. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The way they've, you know, you, you're probably going to have a good idea. Straight away, as soon as you see them, what you don't know from looking at them ski is, is, you know, what they do for a living. What do they think of their skiing? Asking them how they, what do you, tell me what you think your problems are. What 
that's a good way in that first chairlift to get yeah. as much information to be able to pinpoint to that individual in that time frame uh, we're getting the most out of it yeah rather than just going on oh, lesson three let's do that yeah yeah exactly put your poles in your hands point down the hill yeah ski down here that stuff yeah that's true it's very important that that thing that getting to know the client thing and it's not priming them yeah is uh, the analogy you know if you're going to paint a rusty gate Mm. you need to sand it back get rid of the rust prime it and fundamentally when you put that paint on that gate it's going to stick if you don't spend that time to prime that client you know some people I think some people turn up a lesson are really quite stressed out oh my god I'm being looked at I'm being judged judged being, yeah, yeah judged is a huge I've got to do my best skiing and, then, mm-hmm. and you, you as a as if you're trying to learn anything you're not going to learn when your head's in that space so mm-hmm. trying to spend the time to actually put that person in the right frame of mind to then learn yeah and then hopefully when you give them one thing it might stick and instead of coming back and spending the same <laughs> same money on the same fundamental things that they've been talking about for 20 years yeah it's true right the, the one of the things that I always do these days because you do feel that tension don't you as you're coming up the chairlift with that person you know they're sort of they're worried yeah um, especially I think women a little bit they're like that that judgy judginess I'm like look we're not even gonna talk about skiing until we've skied yeah. down to this lift <laughs> I'm skiing I'm warming up I'm rubbish Right, so I'm just going to do my thing. I might occasionally glass you, but don't stress. Just ski how you want to ski. I'll be able to see the thing, whatever the thing is that's bothering you. So don't worry about it. Just ski down here, enjoy it. And actually, I tend to give them a little focus. I'm saying, just tell me what you think. Like, I want you to just do an analysis of the snow as you come down here. So just when we get to the bottom here, just tell me what you think the snow's like. What, what kind of snow we skiing on today and what does it allow us to do and what does and then it gives them something else to think about and while you get a chance to have a quick eyeball on them and I'll ski often I'll ski in front of them that really puts their mind at ease because they think that I'm not looking and I can't see it's like well we all know right that you can yeah. see one look over the shoulder yeah, and you're you like yeah I can see various. how did you see that yes yeah, it's, it's common well you weren't even looking it's like what I do for a living <laughs> yeah I mean it's, you know? it's, but it's putting that I'll often ski behind. I'll just say, yeah. look, I'm following you or whatever, or sometimes I'll ski down. Mm. I mean, again, if you've just met that person, something I'll often do is, is stand still and the skier will come down and they'll look at you like, <laughs> okay, oh, my God, that was rude. Judge me, judge me. And and I just yeah. stand there, look quite upset, and, they, and I just say, the skiing's fine, but your face for... Like an axe murderer, but then they do exactly what you just did, yeah, yeah, which is just to laugh a little yeah. bit. And within two minutes, their guards come down, yeah, they feel a bit more relaxed. They know it's not, you know, it's not a comedy show, but they know it's not super serious, yeah. And we're why do they go skiing? They go skiing to have fun at the end of the day, um, yeah. and you should have fun when you go bloody skiing. It's supposed to be fun, isn't it? That's what they say. What What has annoyed me? That was going oh, to chuck this. I was supposed to chuck this in later. What What's annoyed? What annoys me about skiing? The listeners know this because I say it all the time. Is the skiing 
skiing as performance sport really annoys me because it's also serious. It annoys me as sport in general, actually. I was moaning, I went to see someone who, um, whose husband's quite high up in UEFA the other day. I was ranting about this the other day. It's like, the thing is about modern sport, you can take any sport you like now, it's all been, oh, what would you call it, like uh, corporatized and, perf- and, and yeah. performanced to within an inch of its life. Doesn't matter what sport you want, cricket, football, rugby, uh, skiing, skiing especially. You know, you go on an instructor course, everyone's like, yeah, angles and this and It's like, what are you talking about? We're up in the mountains and we're sliding around on snot. Can't we all just have I a think good that time? It can really overshadow oh sometimes. Just uh, you've got performance boots, like skis and metal in. It's like, just chill. Everyone calm down. That's why I like going telemarking. Because it's, it's just they're totally different vibe. It's it's that weird thing of yeah, I, it takes the fun out of it. And if I go all the way back to skiing up and down that dry slope, it was just fun. Mm. Yeah, it was training. Yeah, I was doing quite well. And suddenly, you know, you've got a, a jacket with your country written on the back and all that. But it was still fun. Mm. And the second it's not, I mean, my 12-year-old is now decided he wants to come out of the race team. Mm-hmm. Um, he's joined a new freestyle free ride club. Yeah. Part of me is a bit dis- disappointed, is the wrong word. A bit upset because it would be nice for him to do a few more years. Yeah. Um, but when I look at the training, I don't see the fun yeah. enough. You know, it's all very serious. It's all about the time. Yeah. And then, and I'm sure it's the same in all of the Alpine nations and, and probably all the same in, you know, you involved with mm. football, etc. etc. Yeah. Kids start getting to 14, 15. Oh, yeah. And they drop out like flies, yeah, even yeah. some of the better ones. Mm. It's true. And we've got a little freestyle club that runs, Max runs uh, on Sunday. It's got two groups this year. It's expanded. And the reason it's popular is because kids just get to go and have fun, jump around and, and you know, ski off piece and all this sort of stuff. They love it. Well, a lot I of those are in yeah, race clubs. Make that complete skier as well. Yeah. You know, make the complete, yeah. complete skier that can, yeah, go, go red, blue, red, blue, red, blue, and hopefully get do their instructor exams if they want to do it mm-hmm. and have that good base and the trainer's very much he'd much rather a kid come from the race team that can't do a 360 or mm-hmm. whatever than a kid that can maybe do a backflip and 360 off jumps and yeah. look, look like they know the way around the, the jump park yeah. but they don't have that fundamental technique yeah. or base of skiing repetition going mm-hmm. around skiing on firm snow da 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 um that allows them to go, as you said earlier, you know, the, most of the best free rider guys in the world, freestylers have, have yeah, probably sp- solid, done their solid technique, done their stuff in the in the gates. Well, the extreme stuff that they're doing these days. Uh, what was that? Um, that Jeremy Heights film that came out. Mm. Um, he used to race. I know guys that used to race with him. I mean, you can't ski that stuff without a solid, no, solid base. Of course can not. You? It's uh, it's pretty serious. 